WestJet stress continues to ramp up as the labor dispute is still a question mark. Is it going to happen? Is it not? But in the meantime, flights are already being cancelled. We check in with the Winnipeg Airports Authority to find out how they are preparing for this potential disruption. Also today, one of the big things we're focusing on on 680 CJOB is how are guidelines like when should you get a mammogram or prostate cancer screening? When are those guidelines set? We learned yesterday that several crime properties are being turned into family homes. So we had a good discussion about that. And based on an experience I had on Wednesday, we had a great time discussing what's a place you wish you could visit more often. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Thursday, May 18th podcast for The Start. It is Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. We'll talk travel plans in a moment. But Loren, what are we doing at 7.05? We're going to be talking throughout the day here at 680 CJOB about the different tests that are out there for cancer, the different screening methods, and the guidelines. You know, just last week, headlines were made when a U.S. health task force said, you know what, mammograms should start 10 years earlier. They're looking at changing it from 50 for women to 40 in the United States. Well, how are those set? And why are sometimes Canadian guidelines and American guidelines so different? Because it can get really confusing out there if you hear, well, wait a minute, they do colonoscopies at 45 in the U.S., but only 50 here. What gives? Well, we'll ask the people behind those decisions that question just after seven. And in our next segment, we're going to tell you how you can win tickets to see Shania Twain on November 7th at Canada Life Centre. My first message is uh, that I feel very sorry for the fact that our guests have been caught in this conflict uh, that I think is absolutely unnecessary. My second message is I'm here to come up with a deal to protect our guests' travel over the May long weekend. We don't want to disrupt this travel. That is WestJet CEO Alexis von Honsbreck. As a strike and lockout seems more and more likely as tomorrow morning's deadline approaches. We've got all sorts of flights that are actually cancelled already on WestJet. You know, you might have thought you're going to at least get out today or get back today. That might not be the case. We're going to visit with the airport authority just after 8 to get what they're doing. But if you look at departures, for example, WestJet at 6 a.m. flight to Vancouver was cancelled this morning. A flight to Calgary for 7 cancelled this morning. So check where you're going. And that same goes for flights coming in. And we suspect it has to do with, you know, planes that may need to end up somewhere. Your arrivals are a bit different. This doesn't mean all WestJet flights are cancelled. You know, there's one that's coming in from Calgary today. No problem. But uh, there will be some confusion out there ahead of the strike for sure, Greg. Uh, Lloyd sends us an interesting text message here, Brett, and I'll tell you why I think it's incredibly interesting beyond the creativity involved. Yeah, Lloyd says we are going to Vegas this Sunday, booked on WestJet, going to see Garth Brooks. We could not wait and to see if the strike will happen or not. So we booked a Legion out of Grand Forks for two of us yesterday morning. By 9 p.m. last night, that same flight had gone up $356 U.S. We paid $578 U.S. for the both of us, which is reasonable for two people. But just checked again, it's now $954. Wow. So uh, clearly people are making alternate arrangements right now. And that's the danger of this strike because, in my mind, because people will 
realize that there are other ways to do this and they might like the other way better than the current way. And Global News has exclusive insight into the fierce bargaining that that's happening between WestJet and the union representing nearly 1900 Swoop and WestJet pilots. As Ann Gaviola reports, the two sides say they remain far apart on key issues like job security and compensation. Negotiations continue around the clock between WestJet and the union representing Swoop and WestJet pilots, racing to reach an agreement ahead of a Friday strike deadline. Travel experts say thousands of flights hang in the balance, threatening to thwart long weekend travel plans. I think uh, we have to be preparing for a very disrupted weekend and maybe a summer that will follow through as well with disruption. New details have emerged about what's happening behind closed doors. Global News obtained a memo sent to pilots by WestJet's vice president of flight operations just hours after the union issued the strike notice and the company countered with a lockout notice. It says pilots rejected total compensation of $350,000 for a wide-body captain, which make up most of WestJet's fleet, $300,000 for a narrow-body captain. It goes on to say WestJet pilots would have the highest narrow-body first officer and captain top-step wage rate in Canada. The union tells Global News the figures are cherry-picked. We have members that uh, are first officers and captains of all levels of seniority that fly different types of airplanes. And this certainly doesn't paint the picture of all the members that we are trying to represent here. In the U.S., pilot contracts actually pay um, double of what is being paid in Canada. Part of this is exchange rate, but part of this is that uh, this is just a very different market. A senior captain of a wide-body aircraft at Delta can make nearly 600000 U.S. I can't promise that we can come up with a deal. And if labor action happens, then guest travel will be disrupted. So I can, uh, I can uh, suggest that it is probably a prudent thing to do to think about alternatives. Key issues remain compensation, working conditions and job security. But both sides say they're committed to coming to a fair agreement in time to avert a strike on Friday. Anne Gaviola, Global News, Toronto. So at the top and the start of this segment, we heard from WestJet CEO Alexis von Honsbrook. Last evening, he spoke with anchor of Global News National, Donna Friesen. We um, have made a very reasonable and but also very generous offer, um, which is basically raising their um, uh, their wages uh, by a double digit percentage and uh, also uh, addressing a lot of the concerns that they have. So overall, the entire negotiation is around uh, scope. So job security, basically, it's around um, working conditions and it's around wages. Right, and but you, uh, but you did say in a tweet that you thought that their expectations are unreasonable. Yeah, the pilot expectations are pretty high. So they compare themselves, so the Canadian pilots are comparing themselves to their U.S. peers. And uh, in the U.S., current, current uh, pilot contracts actually pay um, double of what is being paid in Canada. Now, part of this is exchange rate, but part of this is that uh, this is just a very different market. And uh, they have publicly said that they would like to close this gap. Uh, and if you want to close a gap that's uh, times two, then you can imagine uh, how, how big the jump may be that will take them to where they uh, would like to get. And that's uh, just in this environment where we are, not a reasonable expectation that we can have. So, Loren, negotiations continue with these two sides, uh, at least based on what we heard in the last couple of minutes here, very far apart. 
Yeah, and you have to consider this. Okay, so the strike deadline is 3 a.m. tomorrow. We're now in that, you know, 21-hour territory towards that strike. But because we already have some flights being canceled to to make sure those planes are maybe where they need to be, say even this strike ends in two hours. Well, many flights have already been disrupted, not to mention the fact, as Lloyd texted to say, he's made alternate plans. I'm not, and the reason why I'm shocked again that we're still here talking about this, uh, you know, 48 hours after the strike notice was first launched is because well, I think many of us made the assumption there's no way we'd get to this hour. They'd have to make a deal because nobody wants to see any more disruption in the industry, at least not for the immediate future. And here we are. Uh, if you're a WestJet, a passenger about to get on a plane this morning or tomorrow or Sunday like Lloyd, let us know, 780-6868. We want to hear from you. And again, a reminder, we are going to hear from the airport at 8 just to talk. this. In many respects, Greg, they got nothing to do with what's going on because they can't control a labor disruption. And yet you know there are going to be people who show up at the airport today, potentially tomorrow, not even knowing that their flights have been changed or canceled, even if the strike is averted. So lots of questions. Yeah, but they'll bear the brunt of this, Brett, big oh, time. yes. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. We want to give you some tickets to see Shania Twain, November 7th, Canada Life Centre. And this has to do with my latest purchase. Bought myself a new hat yesterday. The Winnipeg Sea Bears. We spoke with owner David Asper yesterday. And as we get ready for the return of pro basketball to Winnipeg, May 27th, Saturday, May 27th at Canada Life Centre. And I thought I better make sure I get a hat. It looks good. Thank you. Thank you very much. Because I was thinking, I'll just buy some merch at the game. And then I thought, well, no, then if I wear a hat there, then I got to carry a hat around. So I decided to just go get a hat. And one of our listeners, Danny F., tipped me off that uh, Two Rivers, the souvenir store at the Forks, had some hats. So I went and got one. And uh, I got in and got out as quickly as possible. Because whenever I go to the Forks market... And it's the same thing every time you open the door and you just get smacked in the face with a cornucopia of delightful smells and sounds. And it's the, and I, I got in even in two rivers. I could have spent my whole paycheck just on like great store Winnipeg themed T-shirts. And I, I thought, no, I'm I bought I came here to buy a hat and a Seabears T-shirt and I'm getting out of Dodge before I spend all of my day and all of my money at the Forks. But it made me think, I wish I came here more. It's a place where like when I, even when I, when I go there to eat, I can, I can, I get stressed out. I, I can't decide what to eat. I want to try it all. And then I end up regretting like, Oh, I should have had this or I should have. So yeah. Anyway, the Forks, it's awesome. I wish I went there more. Tell us a story about a place you wish you visited more often, whether it's a store or a market or maybe a park, special place that you have in mind. Poitras, why don't we start with you, sir? Uh, this is a place that I've gone to with a couple friends the last two summers, and every single time we're like, oh, we got to make sure we do this. Uh, it's a, a pretty typical uh, Manitoban answer, but Grand Beach. Um, head out there, you know, once the last uh, two summers, and every single time, oh, we got to make sure we come out here once a month before the summer's over. Never do it. Yeah. So probably have to do it. Probably late June, we'll go through the exact same rigmarole <laughs> as we did this year. I'm totally anticipating it. Um, but I, I, I always have fun. It's just a, it's just a nice uh, way to spend a, a summer day. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good one. I, I, I go out to that area sometimes, but it's to golf at Grand Pines out in Grand Marais. So I drive past Grand Beach, but I haven't been to Grand Beach itself since I was a kid. 
So you've got friends kind of in the vicinity, right? Yes. In fact, we're going there this weekend, but we always stick to Albert Beach. We can see Grand Beach quite clearly from where we sit on the sand at Albert, but I might have to make a run over to Grand Beach this weekend just to say I did. Loren, what about you? Well, when you mentioned the Forks, it had me thinking of the Hargrave Street Market, how I've been there before events, but then you don't have enough time to dabble in all the foods that you want to dabble in and you do feel that stress. Uh, this summer, I definitely want to, I love to people watch. So I think I need to try to like carve out an afternoon where I sit down in Old Market Square for the Fringe Festival because just what's going on around you is a delight. Like you don't necessarily, just soaking in the different events and the people and the, uh, you know, the food trucks and the clowns. But Cam made me think of how, you know, I like to get up to Clear Lake. I say that often. I love Wasegamine. I think it's a beautiful park. And what I regret every summer, and regret's not the right word, but I always say, I'm just going to go down and sit on the dock. You know, get up early with my coffee and go sit down at the dock by myself with my book and uh, relax for a few hours before everyone's up. And I've been saying that for years and have not done it once. So <laughs> it's just it's just that space. Like when I get down there with the kids, I love it. Like I just always wanted to sit there and watch everything go by. And it's shady in some parts and sunny in others. And when the sun hits just right, all you want to do is lay back and close your eyes and have that floating dock sleep. And I never do it. So I need to figure out a way to make that happen. I'm always so jealous when I see people posting pictures like from the dock. Yes. Looking out to the lake. Like the beach is cool, but I, I like that idea of sitting on the dock. I way rather, I love the dock and the rocks over the beach just because I'm I'm not interested in the sand like some people are. I, 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 it's a mess. I, it's a mess. Yeah. Yeah. I, let's see, like I go to Grand Beach once a year. That's about as much sand as I can take. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it sand- flops off your summer feet, though. It gets your feet Why, it's, it's, not, it's not easy to walk in sandals uh, in, in sand, so that's a big, it's a big money. <laughs> Which is ridiculous that they call them sandals, but that's a whole other <laughs> conversation. Fair point. Hey, way Fair to go, point. Mackling. What about you, Greg? Well... Uh, Loren, you got me thinking about a dock, a particular dock on Lake of the Woods. My buddy, uh, my buddy Harry Crossan has an amazing spot out there. I uh, would love to be there, but my favorite is Wrigley Field. Oh, and all yeah. around Wrigley Field, all Wrigleyville and everything. Not that there aren't places in Manitoba that I love, but that is my happy, you know, people talk about Disneyland or Disney World as the happiest place on earth. For me, it's Wrigley Field. And it's the smells, it's the hot dogs, it's the beer, it's the pubs around Wrigley Field. You talk about uh, all the all the trappings of 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 the forks. Yeah. Well, they've got dozens of places where you can buy jerseys and T-shirts and hats and and memorabilia and all these different things. And it's just uh, it's just a wonderful way to spend not just two or three hours because when you go to Wrigley, you got to go like two three hours before a game. Go to the game and then two or three hours after. It's like an eight, nine, ten hour experience. So, Greg, maybe you can convince my wife. Uh, at the end of July, I'm looking to take a, a couple of weeks off. They're, they're playing the cards at Wrigley and Ooh. then uh, they're playing at Kaminsky or whatever it's called now mm-hmm. against the White Sox at, mm-hmm. the two days later. Oh, oh uh, the L series. So maybe you can talk to my wife about Get that. Get her to call <laughs> me. I don't care about baseball at all. And one of my favorite memories of Chicago is Wrigley Field. It, it, it's really great. And, and I went to a White Sox games. I don't care about baseball at all. Don't even know who plays for those teams. Didn't even know then. Don't know now. Don't care. Don't know who won. Don't know who lost. She'll love it. You got to go. Sarah McCarthy, what about you? Mine is a park. It's Kildonan Park. I went once this summer, spring already, and it's just so nice. Um, Just seeing all the people, all the dogs. There's food. There's Rainbow Stage. I did go to one play last summer, so that's definitely on the bucket list for this year again. 
Yeah, I said visiting our city parks. I yeah. say every year I got to go to a Cinnabon Park. Never do. Forte, what about you? I would like to go to the Manitoba Museum. I haven't been there since oh. I was a kid. I think it used to be called the Museum of uh, was it Man and Man History? and Nature. Man yes. and Nature. Yeah. Yes, I haven't been there since I was a kid. You know, I would love to see all the little science things they have there, and I'd like to go see the nonsuch and be like, "Hey, that's where <laughs> that's that's where Greg was doing some smooching when he was a teen." That's Isn't that right? Nookie, Nookie, Nookie on, on the nonsuch. The non-such. There you go. <laughs> missing out on that marketing opportunity. <laughs> Our buddy Kevin is a little bothered by one of your sayings, Brett. What? He says, McGarry, uh, please refrain from using the phrase get out of Dodge because it causes all of us Dodges tremendous pain and ridicule. That's from our friend Kevin Dodge on the text line. <laughs> get over it, man. <laughs> It's Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Small town salute, Thursday, 7.35. We're going to talk about glamping and gliding with one of our loyal listeners who told us about something really neat that you can experience. So that's at 7.35. And then at 7.50, we're going to check in with Clay Young, who's at the Red River Exhibition Grounds today as the Manitowabi Festival kicks off. Right now, we want to ask the question, what age should you start asking your doctor about your prostate? Or what about that request for a mammogram or, say, a colonoscopy? Yeah, and how your doctor responds to any of those questions, it might depend on the doctor themselves or where you live and what they are being told the recommendations are. So, for example, last week we know headlines were made when the U.S. Preventative Task Force said it thought women should start getting mammograms at age 40 instead of the current recommendation of 50. That's what we do here in Canada. 50 is the recommendation. Again, in the U.S., United States colonoscopies, the recommendation is 45 here, it's 50. And so we have lots of questions about this, Greg. Yeah, throughout the day here at 680 CJOB, we're going to delve into those recommendations, starting with the WHO sets those guidelines. I think I wanted to say who sets those guidelines, used to seeing WHO. I made that mistake several (laughs) times during the pandemic. (laughs) Pardon me. Our next guest knows that answer. We welcome to the start uh, Dr. Ahmed Abusetta, co-chair, Canadian Task Force on Preventative Health, not with the WHL. Dr. Abusetta, good morning. Hi, good morning. So tell us what your uh, task force does, please. So... um I'm the co-chair of the task force. Additionally, I'm an assistant professor of community health sciences at the University of Manitoba and director of knowledge sciences at the Georgian Faye Center for Healthcare Innovation here at the University of Manitoba also. Um, the task force is an independent panel of experts in preventative health care and the methods for undertaking guidelines from all across Canada. And it's really important that the task force also uh, members have no ties to industry or directly with government itself. That gives us our independent um, aspect. So what do you, how do you go over all this stuff? Like, for example, you know, when I heard this change to mammograms uh, in the States, I thought, I wonder if Canada will follow suit. And I'm going to guess that you, doctor, got the same sort of questions. And so when you hear of different countries changing how they're doing things, does that immediately launch a review, for example, of your own policies and guidelines around mammograms? How, do, how does that all work? When Because there's so much to delve into. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So, um, the question around breast cancer screening, uh, who should be screened, what age should be screened, is, is, is a lifelong question that we've been looked at many times. Um, we also have already started in early 2023 to reinvestigate and to look at the most recent evidence 
uh, even prior to the United States uh, Preventive Services Task Force coming out with their new recommendations. Um, and there is a lot of uh, information, there's a lot of data that is available. Uh, what I could probably say is the most uh, pertinent data from the highest quality uh, studies on women who are, you know, randomized randomly to uh, being advised to get a, a mammogram or not really hasn't changed a lot over the years. What's really changed is um, a lot of the um, smaller, lower quality studies have been coming out a lot more, but also a lot of um, important emphasis on implementation. So not just doing the recommendation, but is it actually being implemented, looking at underserved populations, looking at equity. And I think that's a lot of the driving factor within the U.S. And again, you got to remember, the U.S. is a different population than Canada. They are based on, you know, insurance while we are uh, provided health care through our provinces. So there are a lot of nuances that are different between uh, when we look at the U.S. and Canada. So would that mean then, Dr. Abuseda, that we might be making recommendations because, A, we don't have the ability to deliver uh, that many mammograms or colonoscopies or because it, the, of the cost? Because you referenced insurance there. So that procedure, if it starts earlier, I might have that covered by insurance versus uh, the province or the or taxpayers having to pay for that here. Does dollars weigh into it at all or access? So with regards to our recommendations, we do not take economics into account. So we don't calculate, you know, how much would it cost to um, to do a mammogram or how much the treatment would cost or how much it would save a province. Those kinds of questions are done at a provincial level. Um, and uh, we have no uh, implementation power. So we make recommendations across Canada, but individual provinces and territories then have the autonomy to decide what they're going to implement and how they're going to implement it. And I think one of the things that, that, that confuse a lot of people uh, when, when they hear about the recommendations of the, you know, 40 years versus 50 years, we actually don't say don't screen at 40. We say that if you're, if a woman's values and preferences align with screening at starting from the age of 40, that she should have a conversation with her primary health care practitioner to understand what are the benefits and what are the potential harms of screening and then make an informed decision, which we call shared decision making. Um, and so that's something that, you know, that should be happening. And I would probably say half the provinces currently do that, where women can self-refer themselves to mammography, or they can have their primary health care practitioner uh, refer them or their radiologist refer them, while the other half are sticking with the 50-year the mark. So I think there's a little bit of a confusion about that. And what we believe is our role is to empower women into making health care decisions on behalf of themselves. And uh, we also asked the question right off the top, what age should you start asking your doctor about your prostate? We've got the Manitoba Motorcycle Ride for Dad coming up on May 27th in support of prostate cancer research. So is it is it about like just when you get to a certain age, you should start asking or are there other factors we should like should vary from person to person, maybe depending on family history, for example? Yeah, so another another this is a very good question. And I would also highlight that we're also undertaking a review on prostate cancer screening that is currently ongoing, and we're about halfway through that. Um, so you may get the results similar time for both prostate and cancer, the new recommendations from us. But the question that I think you, you made an important point is, what about family history? What if I have symptoms or, um, you know, signs of cancer? That's no longer actually screening. Screening is for individuals who are at average risk who sort of the person who's walking down the street, who isn't complaining, who doesn't have any uh, past history or family history of cancer to worry about. 
Um, if you are at an elevated risk of cancer, that's not the group that we're talking. We're talking about the general Canadian that's walking down the street that doesn't really have any reason to be concerned more than that they are of a certain age um, and, you know, and being a Canadian, of course. Love to keep this going, but we're out of time. So we thank you very much, Dr. Ahmed Abusada. We appreciate the time and insight. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Dr. Ahmed Abusada, co-chair Canadian Task Force on Preventive Healthcare and assistant professor with the Department of Community Health Services, University of Manitoba, and the director of Knowledge Synthesis, George and Fei Centre for Healthcare Innovation. So again, we'll have much more on this topic through the day on 680 CJOB. <laughs> Small town salute this morning. We're going just west of Winnipeg to feature an opportunity that could first have you soaring over the fields and rivers of Manitoba before settling in for a night under the stars. So this is not the official name yet. At least I don't think it is. But our next guest is referring to it as glamping and gliding. We're joined now by Mike Maskell. He's with the Winnipeg Gliding Club, but the airfield they use is based in Starbuck, which is straight west of Oak Bluff. Good morning, Mike. Yeah, good morning, Loren. Hi, Greg. Brett, how are you guys? We're good. Thank you for always coming on and suggesting such great opportunities uh, for Manitobans, Mike, because this sounds really cool. I, I want to just start with the gliding itself, because some people might not even get how that works. So if I'm going to go fly with you, what would that look like? I'd get to Starbucks, and then what would happen? Our uh, airfield, as you mentioned, is out at, uh, near the town of Starbuck, about 20 miles uh, west of, the, of Winnipeg or Oak Bluff area. And uh, when you show up, you get partnered up with a, uh, an instructor or qualified pilot that will take you in our modern two-seat gliders. The glider itself is towed up by a powered airplane to about 3,000 feet above ground. From there, uh, we release from the tow rope. We're on our own. We're in free flight mode. And it's just a very peaceful uh, uh, observation of the surrounding area, a uh, gentle glide back to the airfield. Um, if we're lucky, uh, and often does happen, we'll see soaring birds, eagles, bald eagles, and, um, and the flights are about 20 minutes long. And there's opportunity as well for uh, the passenger, if they're inclined, to try flying the glider under the uh, watchful eye of the instructor. I'm always amazed, I'm intrigued, I'm enticed every time you tell us about this, whether it's on the air or via text, Mike, and so this sounds fantastic. Now, this year you're trying something a little bit extra, shall we say. You're offering glamping after the glide. Tell us about it. Yeah, this is a partnership that we've developed with the uh, with a Winnipeg-based company. It's called um, Canadiana Camper and Company, and they offer a turnkey tenting experience for uh, for people that are interested in uh, tenting and they have a uh, modern version of what would be a, a military style bell tent at 16 feet in diameter it's totally turnkey they set it up and put in a, a queen size foam mattress bed and uh, accoutrements and all kinds of nice uh, features the people show up and everything is there for them and they they uh, do do the night over at the gliding club and uh, have an opportunity at the same time to experience a glider flight either that evening or the next morning and it's typically a friday night or a saturday night uh, offering that we're uh, partnering up with so it's uh, pretty exciting i've seen the tent and it's pretty amazing what uh, they do when are you looking to host these uh well it's all subject to the booking availability through the canadiana camper uh, company and uh, throughout the summer, uh, and it's typically weather permitting, of course, nobody likes to be out in the rain, and certainly rainy days are not good gliding days, so uh, it's sort of subject to weather, but uh, right through the whole summer, and uh, from what I understand, there's a fair number of opportunities available for booking. 
Yeah, and they have different things they can do. They have the canvas tent, they have a smaller tent, and and, and you can have an option there going on their website just to see what they do. It, when I'm coming with you, Mike, does it is it contingent on winds when I'm up in the air in terms of how far we might go and what we might see and in which direction you might take us? Yeah, it's uh, it's not it's not entirely uh, about the wind. In fact, wind is usually uh, something that slows the glider down a little bit when you're trying to make headway into the wind. So we look for a warmer day with rising air currents. Uh, you see soaring birds, pelicans, hawks, and they, they circle in these rising air currents. And we do the very same thing, and the glider can then extend the flight time. Uh, we can gain altitude. Just for example, this last Sunday, I was up with one of our members uh, at the club doing some instruction, and we were up to 7,000 feet in short order in these bubbles of hot air. And so the flights will uh, vary. Every time you go up, of course, is a, a different air environment, a uh, different air mass. So uh, the times will vary. One of our conversations this morning is the idea of spending more time in a certain space or a certain place. How many flights a summer do you get in, Mike? Well, for myself, I'm one of the uh, more senior instructors of the club, so I do a fair number of student uh, instruction flights. I also fly for myself for fun. Last year, I think I topped over 150 flights, uh, all, all uh, tallied all through the summer. Was Mike, m- before we... Oh, go ahead, Brett. Yeah. I was just going to ask if, is there um, like an age restriction? Like my sister went gliding when she was a kid. I can't remember how old she was, but uh, is there a minimum age one must be to, to get into a glider? The, the gliding club itself has a 12-year of age uh, minimum. And uh, a couple of years ago, I took a fellow up who was 93, and uh, it was on his bucket list. So he, he went up once and then came back a couple of weeks later for a second flight. So there's minimum age, maximum age. There's also some uh, height and weight restrictions for safety on the glider. Uh, passengers shouldn't weigh more than about 230, 240 pounds uh, for weight. And somebody about 6'2", six, 6'3", six, can squeeze in pretty easily into the glider. Hmm. Before I ask you where we go for more information, Mike, what's the prettiest town you've ever flown over? And is the answer Minidosa? <laughs> Uh, well, I could say yes, Minidosa, but we don't get out that direction very often. I know, I know. Um, I've been down to the uh, the Pembina River Valley area west of Morden, and that's a. If you think the prairies are flat, go down to the southwest, and uh, they're rolling hills. There's lots of uh, valley area out there, and that's pretty uh, pretty exciting to fly a glider over that that area of uh, the province. All so right. Where can, where can we go? Sorry, Mike, for more info, if we want to look into the glamping and gliding. Yeah, you can look up the Winnipeg Gliding Club uh, webpage, uh, wgc.mb.ca, and uh, that's where we'll have our information. You can also go to the uh, Camper and Co. It's uh, one word, camperandco.net webpage, and uh, they'll be listing some information there that you can link into. Mike Maskell, Winnipeg Gliding Club, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Mike, thank you very much for this. Always a pleasure, sir. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, guys. And anytime you want to go for a glider ride, let me know. Well, I'm 6'4 and uh, about 225, so I feel like I might be pushing it based on the the requirements you mentioned. Yeah, and uh, Brett's too big for one requirement, and I'm too big for the other. (laughs) Sucks to be tall. I'm on my way. I'll get there. All right, Loren. Loren, you're nominated. I'm short. I can do this. Invitations open, Loren, anytime. (laughs) Mike Maskell joining us live, and that actually reminds me, I tried to go, I think, what is it called, parasailing in Mexico, uh, they just say they, 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 they were just, it was 20 bucks. They, they, the guys were just launching people right from the right beach in the Mazatlan. Beach. And, uh, they looked, but they sent my, my buddy off. He's, he was like five, eight, 150 pounds. And they looked at me and said, how much do you weigh? And I said, I don't know, about two twenty. 
And they said, okay, just, just wait a minute. And I waited <laughs> and watched like five, six people go. And I thought they're, they're not sending me up. They just looked at me and thought he's too big. It's too risky. Cause my, even my buddy almost crashed into one of the hotels. Oh, that's oh, I've no. s- seen people come close to that. I don't, no. I prefer like in Cabo, they put you out off the boat, yeah. not off the beach. And I, I prefer that. Not that I'm going up. I've been on the boat. What's that? Uh, what's the the uh, band you always insist on requesting, and and they never play for you in Mexico, Loren? Is it Bon Jovi? Bon Jovi, anywhere I go. Yeah, that was at you a got, tiki got, bar in got, Chicago. Oh, tiki bar in Chicago. Yeah. So you got you got Loren on that one, Brett. Yeah. They looked at you yeah. and go, yeah. You can stand here as long as you want. You're not, not going happening. up, and we're not playing Bon Jovi when you go up either. <laughs> they did play Brian Adams, though, that night at the bar in Mexico because of all the Canadians in the house. It is Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Reminder that we have Shania Twain tickets to give away for November 7th. We're asking you about places you wish you could visit more often. Shoot us a text, tell us a story for a chance to win those tickets. We'll pick a winner at 9.15. But when it comes to visiting places, there are less than 19 hours to go before WestJet pilots walk off the job. Yeah, and already some WestJet flights in and out of Winnipeg have been canceled. Listener Matt texted to say, My wife was scheduled to fly back from Toronto to Winnipeg this afternoon. Her flight was canceled yesterday with no explanation or offer of an alternative flight. Matt said they ended up booking her on a different carrier, but there's going to be lots of questions and potentially confusion at the airport today ahead of this 3 a.m. deadline. Michelle Rossett is with the Winnipeg Airport Authority. Good morning. Good morning. How has the airport been planning for this? I know you can't control labor disruptions, but here we are, Michelle. Well, I can say that our teams have been working for some time now to include a potential labor disruption as part of their plans to ensure we're as prepared as possible. And this includes how to best support the airlines in supporting passengers who may be impacted um, if the labor disruption goes ahead. And just looking at the departures board here and uh, flights to Toronto, as mentioned by our texter, impacted, but also uh, flights uh, outbound to Calgary and Vancouver have been impacted so far uh, this morning, Michelle. Yeah, so far today, out of the 26 departures that are scheduled for Winnipeg Richardson International Airport, uh, that's being WestJet or soup flights, six have been cancelled, and this is still very much a, a fluid situation. So uh, if, if you're planning to fly with WestJet or Swoop today or even in the coming days, it's important that you, you check the status of your flight before leaving home and keep an eye open for any important communication from your airlines. And if you have to make any changes to your itinerary or if your travel plans are impacted, it's important you do not come to the airport. Instead, contact either WestJet or Swoop for assistance. Now, if there are passengers at the airport already who learn that they've been impacted by this, and you mentioned that you know, you're doing what you can to support both the airline and the passengers, what, what sort of supports can the Winnipeg Airports Authority offer to passengers? We're working closely with our partners at WestJet and Swoop to kind of uh, put up some important communication throughout the terminal to to let passengers who may be impacted and may not have not seen that email or important communication from the airline uh, on the steps of what they need to do to uh, contact the airline, to rebook, to, to find alternative options if needed. 
I know that uh, the tension sometimes can be high at an airport because people are excited to go places. They might be stressed about going places. They might have business they have to get to. And I'm curious in the preparations, Michelle, in talking to staff, how much just how you communicate that message to travelers is important because people will be already... Um, their tempers would be ready to flare if their flight got canceled at the last minute. So how much of it really is just about that strong communication? Yeah, we understand this is creating a lot of uncertainty for some travelers, especially those who might be heading off on a vacation this weekend, being May long, or going to see family or friends. So uh, we've been sharing a lot of critical information throughout the terminal, throughout our website, throughout social media. And that's kind of the best bet to, to see the most up-to-date information is is through social media or even through WestJet and Soup's website. They've created a hub where you can go see the most up-to-date information regarding labor negotiations, the status of your flight, and options to rebook or cancel your itinerary if needed. Michelle, we've been uh, sort of uh, speculating as to why these flights would be canceled today. Have you got some insight there? Does this have to do with making sure that if these planes are parked for extended periods of time, they're in the right spot and and maybe getting crews to where they ought to be or or making sure they're not where they don't want to be? Yeah, it's very much a WestJet decision to cancel the flight. And the reason why, they've indicated to us late last night that they're going to begin canceling some of their uh, scheduled departures uh, just as they slowly kind of uh, bring down their network and anticipation of a potential labor disruption. It's not known how many departures yet will be impacted here at Winnipeg Richardson International Airport, as we've been told that some flights operating under the WestJet Encore brand will continue to operate. Those are usually the little uh, Dash 8 planes, the propeller planes, as well as a limited number of other flights. So again, the important thing is if you're scheduled to fly with either WestJet or Swoop in the coming days or even tomorrow, Keep a very close eye out for any important communication. Check the status of your flight before leaving to the airport. And if your travel plans are impacted or if you have to make any changes to your itinerary, don't come to the airport. Instead, contact your airline for assistance. Michelle Rosé with the Winnipeg Airports Authority. Thank you very much for the time, sir. We appreciate it. Take care. And imagine how much of a bummer it would be. Like, let's say the strike is averted. And then yes. it's and then it's all systems go. But what kind of a bummer would it be to be the person whose flight is canceled in anticipation of a strike? I mean, we've been having these discussions for three, four days, right, Loren? The idea of you might get one place, you might get your outbound flight, but not your inbound. But for some people, say you were here in Winnipeg as an example on business for the last couple of days, you call Toronto home, and then to have your Thursday flight canceled. I think that would be a shock to a lot of people. Well, Marty Firestone, Travel Secure, is an insurance expert, joined us earlier this week. And I had said, oh, I'd be so stressed if I had flights this weekend. And his exact quote was, I would be stressed too, but I'd be even more stressed if I was heading out Thursday. And I didn't cross my mind that there would be preemptive moves made. You know, it's not like I thought the plane would stop flying exactly at 3 a.m., but it didn't cross my mind that they would be doing this to um, control maybe where the pilots end up, control where those planes end up. So you really need to be checking throughout the day if you're going. And then you have to wonder what sort of disruptions down the line a strike could potentially cause because a lot of people fly different airlines in and out of places, right? So you might be heading out on a WestJet flight, coming back on a Air Canada or vice versa. And those connections in between could leave a whole lot of people uh, in limbo. Yuck, ugh, ugh, get this fixed. Yeah, and if you want to continue to weigh in, 204-780-6868, if this has affected your plans or potentially might affect your plans, we'd love to hear from you.
six houses once used for crime in Winnipeg will soon be affordable homes instead. Global News anchor Kevin Hirschfield explains. The properties were seized under the province's Criminal Property Forfeiture Act, which allows justice officials to seize assets that are involved in unlawful activity. Now, normally the assets are sold at roughly market value, and the money raised is given to victims, victim service agencies, and police. But this time, the province is looking to sell the six properties for $1 each to an Indigenous or non-profit organization, which would then develop affordable single-family homes. Community advocate Sel Burroughs says this is a win for the area. It's very, very hard on people when there's a drug dealer in their area. Sel Burroughs joined Richard and Julie on the news yesterday afternoon. This is good news. It's taken a long time coming. We're very, very pleased that we're going to have six houses that were owned by alleged drug dealers, and they're now going to be social housing for people who need decent housing. It's a good news story. Burroughs has been an advocate, a passionate advocate for for Point Douglas for decades now, Brett. And when Burroughs says this has been a long time coming, he isn't kidding. The legislation allowing criminal seizure of criminal assets gained by crime was introduced by the NDP, the previous government, Andrew Swan. Up until now, all of the assets that were have been seized, it's in the tens of millions of dollars, have gone to crime prevention activity, gone to police and such. This is the first time the money has been returned to the community in the form of social housing. It's the community that's harmed by major drug dealers. It's the community, people who live in those areas. I want to use stronger language. It's very, very hard on people when there's a drug dealer in their area. And when the property can be seized and something positive done with it, that's really, really important. Yeah, and when you consider the fact that these seized properties are then being sold to indigenous indigenous or not-for-profit community groups, uh, Sal really feels that's the key component to the plan. Oh, yes, and we're really hoping uh, there's some social housing organizations, one of my favorites, Kinu Housing, one of the best indigenous-run social housing. I've called them up and said, I hope you put, put your name in because... They get really good tenants and they manage their places really well. Can you imagine if we apply this principle to all the derelict buildings in and around the city of Winnipeg, what difference this would make? Well, you know, it would make a lot of difference. I also want to comment because they didn't just seize houses. They seized bank accounts. So there's money available to these organizations to fix the houses up if they need fixing or demolish them if some of them A couple of them are in pretty bad shape. You know, I want to take it even farther, not just houses. I mean, we should be seizing drug dealers' uh, cars, drug dealers' assets all over the place. The criminal justice system is a very rough tool to be used. It's very slow. Civil uh, forfeiture using the civil courts is, is a bit faster, and the level of proof needed is not quite so high. Just a tremendous idea. And, you know, the the fact is they take these properties, they're going to sell them for $1 each to the Indigenous or nonprofit group, and then they can develop the single-family homes. And think about the change that that will make on that street. If that's a home that you cross the street to avoid, a home that had, you know, so much criminal activity going on about it. it might be selling drugs but there could have been weapons involved people coming and going who are doing bad things or have the intent to do really bad things and now you're changing the whole outlook the whole makeup of the street it's giving it a makeover to know that in the future you won't be staring at a home that you tell your kids to stay away from it might be your new home and i think that gives a lot of hope to people and really i love the idea of bringing it back 
to the community, right? The community takes yeah. charge, which is what they've been trying. So, you know, folks like Sal and everybody who works with them have been trying so hard to be the solution. And this then allows them to do that. Well, the people who are right there can be sort of in charge of the solution and how that solution is created. And to be, you know, these are the front lines of social issues, criminal issues, uh, you name it. Uh, these folks uh, experience it every single day. And I've often wondered and had the, the, you know, the thought out loud, Brett, about the emotional, the mental impact the, that, that crime has on a neighborhood. And it's one thing to talk about crime stats. It's another thing to talk about arrests and convictions. But just when you're living around, say, a drug house, and the impact that that has on your family, unless you've experienced it, I don't know if you can even imagine it. Um, I haven't shared this story before, Brett, but I had a rental property in Elmwood for years, for almost a decade, and I had the same family living there the entire time. And off and on, the property directly beside them was either a drug den or a place where drugs were being dealt out of. And I worked with a different part of the provincial government with regard to neighborhood livability, and they were incredibly reactive in terms of figuring out what was going on in that house. But it's a long process, as Sel said. When, when it's criminality, it's one thing. This whole idea of civil liability might be the way to go on this. And the impact, like I say, unless you've lived it, it's tough to imagine. That's a, that great insight, Mackling. Thanks for sharing that. And yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm probably sure every neighborhood's got that house that you, you cut, whether it, whether you know there's something going on or you suspect something's going on. When I lived in an apartment block on Provence, right next door to the block, there was this beat up old house and there were people coming and going at all hours. And often they'd, they'd, they'd set fires in their front lawn. I don't know what they were burning, but it would just stink up the whole neighborhood. And it was like pretty close, not just not only to their property, but to the building I lived in as well. And I even went and asked them like, what are you, what are you doing? This is Mm -hmm. gross. And I was thankful to see, I don't know what happened. Like I, I moved out of that block and the a year later or two years later, the house was just gone. So that made me, I was thrilled. Like, like torn it was, down? It or? Just got, yeah, it's, it, it was leveled and just okay. destroyed. It's eradicated. So that made me happy because, I mean, there was the, the house looked like it was in such a state of disrepair that it couldn't possibly be used for the, what we just discussed here. So just to see that it's gone. Made me happy, uh, but to see that these houses are being used the way that they're about to be used—that's that, like this was a big, like this is that good news story. Well, you think about our guest friend, listener Tracy. I think she lives on Mad- Matheson. If I remember that right. Yes, correct. The derelict home right next to her. It burned down in the fall, and she thought that was going to be the end of her stress because the house was gone, but there's a pile of rubble left behind, and then she has the garage that still stands next to her, and another fire was lit there, and then people come and go to steal things from it, do drugs in and around it. And she shared with us publicly that she had had a heart attack just a few weeks ago, and not that she's blaming this on her health issues, but the stress, she says, of living next to this home for months on end, wondering every night if tonight's going to be the night when X, Y, or Z happens. I don't think we take that into account enough. So I know there are going to be also lawyers out there that say the forfeiture of these properties, you know, like sometimes they're taken without even a conviction. And there's all sorts of questions maybe about 
about that. But at the end of the day, Calvin Gerson said the vast majority of cases, you know, the criminals aren't contesting what went down there. And now there's a way to do some good with that. Maybe that's the, the, the future for a lot of this stuff. I don't uh, Sal suggested cars. Do you think that's a good idea? Taking their cars, taking more than just the money and the home? Mm. I'd have to think about that one a little bit more. I'd, I'd want some more details on that. Uh, but th- this this is what happens when someone passionate, someone on the ground says enough is enough. And it's taken a really long time, but more of us need to be that way and to stand up and say, we're not going to take this anymore. We're tired of this. We need to fix the problem. And here's a solution. I'm endorsing this solution. And uh, we need more of that in our community, in my opinion. So uh, cheers and a tip of the hat to sell and everyone who made this a reality. The last time it snowed on May long weekend (laughs) Thursday We are playing this music There is a method to the madness Because we're asking you About places you would like to visit More often That you wish you would visit more often This is inspired by the fact that I went to the Forks Market yesterday on a mission To buy a Winnipeg Sea Bears hat Listener Danny F. Said that you can. They were selling Sea Bears hats at Two Rivers, the souvenir store. So I booked it down there after work yesterday because we spoke to David Asper, the owner of the Sea Bears. And as soon as I walked in, and I, every time I go to the Forks, I say, "Why don't I come here more often?" So it just got us thinking: Where would you like to go more often? And Loren, what does William have to say? Oh, William, 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 you almost had me. You were tugging at my heartstrings, William. But uh, all right, Minnedosa. <laughs> Minnedosa is the place William picks. I'd like to get back to Minnedosa and area. I'm on board so far. I used to camp, golf, and fish in the area many years ago. Love the area and neighboring Nipawa and Clear Lake. <laughs> Side note, I was randomly in attendance for the first ever original Rock in the Field in Minnedosa way back when. William, so was I. And you know what? You were two out of three. Ain't bad. <laughs> Minnedosa and Clear Lake. Must do's. <laughs> But then you had to go and throw in Nipua. When was the first Classic Rock weekend? I was in high school school still, so I think it was my last year of high school, 95? I'm trying to remember the first year I went. I didn't go the first year. Steppenwolf was there, I feel like. Oh, oh, wow. (laughs) How about that? Maybe that was the second year. Someone's going to correct us shortly. that That event got so gigantic. So huge. Like, was it the year, was it 2000, I want to say, the summer of 2000 when Def Leppard was there, Sammy Hagar was there, Foreigner was there. It was like, they were talking like eight, nine, ten thousand people there each night. It was absolutely spectacular. And then, of course, financial situations uh, meant that the the uh, event had to be scaled down. But uh, it's going strong. Rocking the fields of Minnedosa, going again this this August long weekend. They have quite the lineup set up there. And it's a co-op now. So it's a sort of a non-profit organization that's been set up to make sure that that event continues for years to come, Brett. 
Yeah, it looks like an exciting time. And and by the way, William has uh, pre- lined up what we're doing this year for the new nine. One of, one of the boys' golf tournaments that we're doing this year. We're going to Minnedosa. We're staying in, in Clear Lake. I've never played Clear Lake. And then we'll play Nipawa as well. Three, uh, well, two. I know the two. Minnedosa no. and Nipawa are excellent. Yes. Clear yeah. Lake, I, I've heard nothing but great things about it. So I can't wait to try that. And I joke. I know Nipawa is pretty, even pains me to say it they're like the saskatchewan of my life you know they're good but you hate to say it <laughs> rivalries saskatchewan of greg's life rather that's that that's that's true and minnedosa had that uh, nine hole course that was just spectacular for so many years and like, i want to guess it was 16 17 years ago they opened up the the it's not really a back nine because the 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 18th the hole nine. yeah the the up top nine and they integrated it with the with the older co- course and uh it's really really very nice but that nipawa course some of the vistas some of the elevated tee boxes are spectacular yeah Matt. yeah they blew blew my mind so i can't wait to get back for that and you you talk about rivalries it looks like, and we've been sort of mentioning this, uh, looking t- uh, towards the May long weekend, so yes. we're paying a bit more attention to what is the weather doing. And we've got a, a, a rivalry brewing here between Environment Canada and other and other weather apps because there there are conflicting forecasts. Okay, how did this come to your attention? One of our listeners uh, sent a screenshot of one of the alternative apps to. Environment Canada as to what to expect was listening, knowing that I'm going up to uh, Lester Beach this weekend, sent (laughs) me the forecast and I'm like, that's not very good. That's nothing compared to what we're expecting here in Winnipeg. So I went on the Environment Canada website to check on Grand Beach and I've got my phone app in my left hand comparing the two. It's apples and oranges, Brett. Okay, so... I'm looking at, I've got the weather network in my hand on my phone for Grand Beach. So for this weekend, we've got, hang on a second, where did it go? Um, We've got Friday, 17, Saturday, 12, Sunday, 11, and then Monday, 19 with a 60% chance of showers. So 17, 12, 11, and 19. And then Environment Canada says uh, weather.gc.ca, and then you can search the different uh, communities across Canada. Grand Beach, Manitoba, 10 degrees, a few showers today. Tomorrow, sunshine, 21. Saturday, sunshine, 26. Sunday, sunshine, 26. Monday, sunshine, and 31. Could those forecasts be more, they're almost diametrically opposite like from degree, one another. Could degrees apart in some respects, no? Yes. Like an 11 to a 31? Yeah, it's crazy. I, I, like, I know the Northeast United States was under a frost and or freeze advisory. I think it was 37 million Americans. Yeah, the PGA Championship was delayed this morning. Right, because of frost in, in the northeast of the United States. That's in Michigan, yeah? Yeah. They're, they're doing the PGA Championship. Oh, Rochester. No, it's or in New Rochester. York. Yeah. New York. Um, so, I mean, I so I could see that maybe there's a, a line of division somewhere, but does it does it have to be right between... Selkirk and Grand Beach? Like, is that possible <laughs> that we're on either sides of, of a cold front for the next four days? This, something's goofy. Something goofy is happening here, McNabb. I'm now just panicking because I'm only sticking with Environment Canada for my forecast. <laughs> what does it say for Clear Lake? It says it's tremendous, and I'm going with that. I'm not even, I'm not even looking at other things at all. 
Well, it I, is uh, the week, the weekend. I mean, it's not it's not as good as what you got. And of course, uh, Monday is the money day. It seems like the day you'll be driving home. But tomorrow, twenty one. Saturday, twenty four. Sunday, twenty three. And Monday, twenty nine. But that's that, on that's Environment Canada. That's I'm not looking at the other ones, Greg. I already said that. <laughs> oh, I'm All just right? trying to hammer. No, I, you're not. I'm gonna be. I'm not gonna be alone in my misery. Yeah, here. you are. That, I'm not, we're not doing this. We're not doing this. You know, it'd be unheard of to get these kind of temperatures in Clear Lake because of the escarpment, and it's always traditionally a bit cooler up there. It'd be unheard of to get that in June, let alone May long. So Hmm. I look and I like and I don't listen to anything else. Those are the three L's. Look, like, don't listen. I'll just say this. I'll just say this, that the app on my phone says that the Monday forecasts match up pretty well, but that's all I'm going to say. The day you're going. Like leaving. Hopefully, that the, the situation improves for like that. How, as Greg pointed out, this weird little pocket of southern Manitoba, way colder than everyone else. Yes, <laughs> take your best shot. Some random Alanis. Not Mac- random. We were talking about hot and cold, and oh, I started yeah. singing that to Forte about how the forecasts are all over the place. <laughs> Okay. And I don't think he knew this song because it came out long before he was born, I think. But <laughs> Same year as as I was born. Oh, oh wow. Perfect. Two. It's a birthday song. <laughs> good call. Good call, you two. Uh, question of the day, by the way, cjob.com for Mr. Furnace. Don't call them first. You'll see why. Call Mr. Furnace, 204-832-6243. Question we asked yesterday. Latest numbers show rent in Winnipeg is up 7% year over year. If you're a renter or someone you know, what are you seeing? 45% said uh, more than 7% hike. 39% say it's risen, but less than 7%, and 16% said the rent is frozen. Um, we got a new question up at cjob.com. But right now, the question we're asking you for a chance to win Shania Twain tickets, what's a place you wish you could visit more? And one of our runners-up, Trevor, says, Fishing. I live in Lockport. Lockport, next to the Dam River lot. But I never get out fishing. Going to try this year. Got to do it. And he sent a picture. Like you, The river it looks like it's a pitching wedge from his backyard. Hmm. So good for you, Trevor. Get out this year and enjoy it. And it is funny how sometimes the things that are right in our backyard are the things we never do. That's one of the reasons. That, like the forks. It's a 20-minute walk for me. There are people who don't in New York, the only time they've ever gone to the top of the Empire State Building is when they have visitors from elsewhere. Oh, I've never done that. Yeah, yeah we should do that. Yeah. Have you ever been? Nope, never been. <laughs> it's a great way to see your own city, I guess, is hosting out-of-town guests. That's right. Um, and Greg, uh, what about Reed? What does Reed have to say? Well, a place where I would like to go more often would be Italy. The weather, the sights, the food, and the people are amazing. Oh, Reed, you are so right. I've been to Italy for exactly six hours, and that was uh, five years ago, four years ago, mm-hmm. when I went from Slovenia to uh, Palmanova, Italy for pizza. To see my brother's mother-in-law. Oh yeah. And he turned around, and went back. So now I'm dying to go back. One of our uh, one of our colleagues is there right now, right, Brett? Yeah, one of our colleagues has been in Italy for the last week and a half, and her she's been very active on social media. Her pictures and videos are driving me bonkers. Looks like she's looks like she's having a horrible time. <laughs> Awful. Yeah, yeah. It's an ugly place there too. The architecture is just <laughs> it's second, third, maybe fourth rate. Food's no good. No, Nothing the art's drink. terrible. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm trying to convince myself of anyway. <laughs> but Loren, Maureen has taken this next level here uh, for the win. What does Maureen have? 
while Maureen do the question, where would you like to visit more often? She says, my partner immediately said the bathroom. Ha ha ha. <laughs> but for me, I was fortunate enough to win an all expense paid trip to Whistler. We went in December of 2021. It was a trip of a lifetime as I had never stayed there before and B was able to ski for the first time in my life. I took some lessons. The whole experience was unforgettable. And we swore we would go again. Loved everything about it. It included ski lessons with Olympian ski equipment rental for four with days. With an Olympian. Oh, with an. That's not the name of the ski company? No, oh, like an actual Olymp- Olympic skier. Ski lessons with an Olympian. Yeah. Ski equipment rental for four days. Four days lift ticket. <laughs> dinner Lord. out every night. Spa day. Snowmobile day. It was honestly the best trip ever. And being my age, which let's just say I'm a senior. <laughs> Never having skied before, I had to take advantage of it and tried it. And I loved it. Maureen, wow. well done. Good for you. Some people might have won that and thought, oh, I, I'm not going to try this now. Right? Bravo. But that is a prize. Whew. And that, that would that'd be worth tens of thousands of dollars. Yes. Oh, yeah. And the picture, okay. Greg, you described it perfectly. It's like a Hallmark movie. She sent a pic of where she stayed. <sighs> Whistler's Village is gorgeous it's expensive now it's it's for the elite ah. and those who don't mind racking oh. up their credit card <laughs> uh, it's one ski day there I'm, I'm sure if you're just doing the rental and ticket alone would oh. be 300 bucks minimum i'm guessing it, it, it's for not, one person it's not inexpensive maureen you win the tickets for shania twain on november 7th congratulations thanks for sharing your story Right now, I want to tell you about a book published last year, which zooms in on a notable moment in Canada's military history. The book is Our Father's Footsteps, Stories of World War II Veterans, What If Moments, looks at four men who landed on Normandy Beach on D-Day back in 1944. Author Don Levers joins us in studio this morning. Don, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So what inspired you to pursue this project? Well, my dad had been one of the men who landed on Normandy Beach. And uh, so when I um, met with Gord Stanky, one of your colleagues in Edmonton, and told him I was heading to Normandy, he told me it'll be great to walk in your dad's footsteps. So I went back and started looking at my family records, dug out the journals, and began writing the stories. And on my trip to Normandy in 2019, I started talking to people and asking if they had any stories of what I refer to in the book as their what-if moments. In my dad's case, he was wounded in the leg on D-Day morning, and his letter home to his parents, written in incredible penmanship, it said, two inches higher, and I would have stopped being a man. I wouldn't be sitting on the 30th floor of this building right now having an interview with you if that had happened. So it was the idea of the what-if moments, and each of the men in the story had a what-if moment. Don, these stories are obviously shared by those who survived this pivotal battle. How difficult was it for those who did speak with you and share these stories for them to do so? Because I know I know some veterans can be very hesitant to share their stories, and quite often they're protecting the people that they love the most. One of the differences between a book like of mine and things that uh, people like Ted Barris and David O'Keefe will write is they had the privilege of talking to the veterans. My book is made up because it was only with the help of the families that I was able to tell the stories because they get, these men were all have all passed away. So they gave me family history books, letters, journals, telegrams that were sent while they were in England, 
telegrams that were sent after they were wounded. And then I used the war, war diaries to fill in some of the gaps. And the family history books allowed me to tell a little bit about who these men were both before and after the war. So they're not just the war stories because I wanted to tell the story of ordinary average men who volunteered to serve their countries. And there's stories of three Canadians who all survived. And um, because of that, there was 32 direct descendants born in Canada. And the other story is about a uh, chap with the Royal Engineers. And I met his daughter on the beaches of Normandy. And she shared her story after I got back. And we've become great friends. You, you randomly met her on the beaches or just connected with her there? Tell me a bit more oh, about that, Don. Oh, if you talk to the people I was with, the, uh, <laughs> the 12 of us from a Canada that went there, uh, we, everywhere I went, I was meeting people. I says, I'm working on this story. Do you have any, you know, do, was your father here? Anybody here? And uh, so I would tell them what I was doing. And uh, I talked to Marie Brown. And uh, she said her dad was there on D-Day. And uh, so when I got back, she sent me a lovely letter, uh, email, telling her how she, it made her think when I told her about the stories I was doing, made her think about the, the moments of her dad's life. And she started to share that. And together we um, discovered a lot about her dad including a, let, a picture that's in the book of Marie when she's uh, about three months old because she was born in 1944 after the invasion of Normandy. And when she took the picture out to send it to me, on the back of the picture is a uh, love to daddy, and she had never seen that before, and he carried that picture with oh. the rest of the war. So it was things like that that made it so special. Western Europe has done such an incredible job of preserving this dark part of our history and making sure that it, that it lives. Uh, and it's obviously important, Don, what was it like to be in Normandy to see the, the various uh, evidence uh, of, of, of these two world wars and world war two in particular and the work that uh, France and Belgium and Holland have all done to, to make sure that we don't forget. The, Commonwealth War Graves Commission has done an incredible job of keeping these, the headstones and the cemeteries of these places just immaculate. And after reading uh, back over my dad's diary and then taking a look at the nominal rolls of the Royal Winnipeg Rifles that listed all the men as they were, who were killed, wounded, taken prisoner, and in fact who were murdered. And I was at the Commonwealth War Graves in Benny Samir, and I saw the headstone of two men my dad had mentioned being with on D-Day morning. And they had both been murdered. And uh, then we went, and the people of France, and that's one of the reasons I'm going back in, in 2000, uh, next year, 2024, is that the pe young people of France had come out to celebrate and appreciate all the sacrifices that the Canadians and other soldiers from around the world had done. And uh, this time I'm going to take my daughter and granddaughter to say, we're only here because this is where your, your, my, my dad was when he survived. And uh, a lot of other men, you know, a lot of other Canadians, 358 or so, did not survive D-Day morning itself. Our guest is Don Leavers, who's written a book called Our Father's Footsteps, Stories of World War II Veterans' What-If Moments, which looks at four men who landed on Normandy Beach on D-Day back in 19. 44. Now, we last spoke to you in advance of the anniversary of If Day. Uh, you did a presentation at the Harvey Smith Library last evening and uh, understand you had a couple of special interactions. Yes, uh, I did a presentation at the Harvey Smith and uh, 
matter of fact, Harvey Smith uh, Library is just below that is Goulding Street, and my father lived at 613 Goulding Street. That's now, the, is it that's, Goulding or Golding? We called it Golding. That's okay. the street I grew up on. Really? I grew up at 708 Golding. And, Seven one, uh, 613. And I oh, probably wow. I delivered papers to 613 Golding Street. Well, Back in the day, I can picture the house. I know the exact house. <laughs> All these connections, the six degrees of separation they talk about. It's two it's or more, one in Winnipeg. Exactly, exactly. So I, I did that presentation last night, and it was a small crowd, but... Uh, one of the people who came there was a, a daughter of a friend of mine, and uh, I knew him from the time I lived in Victoria, and he had a copy of the 1940, March 9th, 1942 Life magazine. And Life magazine and 40 million other people saw Winnipeg fall prey to the Nazis on IF Day of 1942. And being given a copy of this uh, magazine that includes a picture of her grandfather reading the charges to Mayor Queen on the day of IF Day, February 19th, 1942, was just, it kind of sends chills. I have chills right now. And that those are left over from when you showed me that picture and described that interaction. And you also mentioned something that you had at the library last night that was not really practical for you to bring with us this morning. Yeah, I don't get to show it, but uh, one of the first things I did when I... St- and one of the other people that was at our uh, do last night was another chap that went to Normandy with us that works at the Winnipeg Library. And um, so he was there last night. And uh, one of the first things we did when we stepped onto Juno Beach the first evening we got there was I took footprints, a uh, picture of my footprints in the sand, and you can see on the cover of my book, I know your, your customers and your audience can't see it, but my footprints are actually embedded in the cover of the book. And uh, so I also, the other thing I did was gather up a little uh, sand from Normandy Beach. And last night, another member of the Royal Winnipeg Rifle family uh, brought me a, another little bit of sand with a rock in it that he'd picked up in 2019 when he was there. Oh. So... The the people that you meet and the connections I've made as a result of this have been incredible. And one of the things I'm hoping to do is I did a presentation in Edmonton, in Edmonton with Ted Barris and David O'Keefe. I, I, I got them to give me 15 minutes of my fame and, and, and talked amongst about 250 people. And one of the things they said when I finished is, is they said, well, Don forgot to tell you, that's just book one. <laughs> so I'm working on more stories. And one of the things, uh, if your audience is interested and has anything, I also want to tell the story of a war bride. Because the war brides, can you imagine being a young woman in France or Belgium or Holland, being swept off your seat, uh, off your feet by a Canadian, being brought back to Canada, 10 days on a ship coming across the Atlantic, getting on a train after getting off a of Pier 21 in Halifax, 10 days on the train to some small place in Alberta, and then taken 20 miles out of town where you've got 40 below and an outhouse. So I can't imagine what these women went through. And I've, and I've talked to some people and I want to get those stories. And I, There's more stories to tell. And with that, they wouldn't have had the option of hopping on a plane to go back and visit someone, right? And when often those war brides were saying goodbye to their own families potentially for good. So there's so much more to learn. And I think that's key here, Don. How, how often do you even talk to family members and they say that you help them learn more about their own family, things that they perhaps didn't even know? That's one of the goals that I've set. 
is that I want people to look further into their family's military history and realize how lucky, and, and not just uh, World War II or World War I, but Korea, but, you know, the, the men who never became fathers. Uh, one of the chaps that was at the meeting last night, the, 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 man, the man who gave me the sand and rock, he, he was uh, the child of a war bride, and they came to Canada. And, uh, but a lot of women turned around and went home if they didn't have the families. You got to be kidding! <laughs> they had a, you know, lived in a perhaps a bombed out city, but some of the conditions may have been better than they, what they were in rural Saskatchewan or or rural Manitoba or, or Alberta. Don, we have to leave it there. The clock is uh, against us here. Thank you so much for for this book, for sharing your stories, and uh, we're actually going to be able to give away a copy of this book uh, to our listeners. We'll do that on the other side when we're just wrapping up with Hal Anderson. Thank you for this. And I know you're heading to McNally Robinson to make sure they have more copies of this book. Absolutely. I'll take some down there that are signed and it's also available on, on Amazon. So if anybody's interested and uh, if they can reach out and look at my website, they can reach out to me. If they have stories, they can contact me at uh, leversdawn at gmail.com. Don Levers. The book is called Our Father's Footsteps, Stories of World War II Veterans, What If Moments.